What a wonderful couple of songs that we sang. We stand forgiven at the cross. Isn't it an amazing thing? You know, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ has paid the price. And we stand forgiven at the cross for all those who have repented of their sins and all those who embraced the gospel, the Christ of the gospel, and the gospel of Christ. So with that said, let's go to our great Redeemer, the lover of our souls, and ask the Lord that he might bless us. Father, we want to thank you so much for the grace that we have experienced in Christ. All of us here and understand on my voice who have repented of their sin and embraced you, Lord Jesus, as King and Lord, and as our sacrifice, we stand forgiven now and forever. We praise you. We thank you. And now, Lord, I pray as we open up this powerful passage of Scripture, just one verse today we're going to be talking about, about coveting. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to understand and to apply what you have for us today, that we may change us to be more like yourself, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. And so today we come to the end of the study of the Ten Words, the summary statement of the Torah. As we've been saying practically since day one in our study of Deuteronomy, Torah is not primarily a list of laws given out by a dictatorial deity. The Torah is God's ways taught by Moses to his people, that his people might know how to live the best life there is this side of eternity. And by the way, is living the life that Christ would have us live, is that the best way to live? I hear some yes. I don't hear a whole lot of enthusiasm. But yeah, it is. It is. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never do trick questions, do I? <laughs> don't answer that question. Anyway. Again, let me remind us, though, of our call and response. Remember the three questions we talked about? So the question is, who were these ten words, as we call them, ten commandments, given to? God's people. And who were they not given to? Not God's people. And why did God give us as his people ten words? To show him that we love him as we obey them. Indeed, the ten words is a summary statement of the Torah. Again, Torah means teaching, teaching God's ways to God's people. And what a summary statement it is. Remember how Moses told the Israelites that when the pagans witness God's people observe the ways of Yahweh, the pagans will see the Torah as something amazing. And if you don't have your Bible open, please open it up now to Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 to 8. Deuteronomy 4, 6 to 8. We're going to be going through a couple passages of Scripture today. But again, let's, let's go back there and, and remind ourselves of what the pagans are going to see and what they're going to witness and how they're going to exalt the Lord as God's people obey the words of Yahweh. Keep them and do them, Moses says, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous 
as all this law, this Torah that I set before you today. Now, one thing that we do understand, all of us, right, that the Lord has never changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as He is, so are His ways. His ways are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like Him, the Torah reflects His good and unchanging nature. And when not only Israel back then, but also the church now and even nations, when they apply the Torah to their situations, they will experience the blessings of Yahweh. And especially when Christians live out the Torah, non-Christians will see how good and right the Lord's ways are. And as we know, our country was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, Judeo-Christian principles. We know that, right? Even young folks, we know this. Now, you probably hear a whole lot of things contrary to that, but that is not the case. It is true that we have been founded and established on Judeo-Christian principles. That's our bedrock. We could be here till next week just listing all the contributions that the Torah has made to the bedrock of our society, in our culture, in our nation. But over time, we have forgotten our heritage, haven't we? Many have deliberately stepped off our foundation and dragged many with them. And one such stepping off point is summed up in a unanimous Supreme Court ruling handed down in 1980. How many of us were alive in 1980? Over here, nobody, <laughs> except for Sam. So give a listen to this. Maybe you didn't even hear this. Maybe some of you have heard this. This ruling, this case had to do with whether the Ten Commandments could be posted in public school classrooms in Kentucky. Here's part of the decision. It, it, it blows me away every time I read this. Here's what they said. The preeminent purpose for posting the Ten Commandments on the schoolroom walls is plainly religious in nature. Uh-huh. The Ten Commandments are undeniably a sacred text in the Jewish and Christian faiths, and no legislative recitation of a supposed secular purpose can blind us to that fact. I say again, uh-huh. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, this ruling goes on to say, it will be for the following reasons. To induce school children to read, meditate on, perhaps to venerate, and even obey the commandments. Well, imagine that. However desirable this might be as a matter of private devotion, the posting of the Ten Commandments is not a permissible state objective under the Establishment Clause. That is written in the record, 1980, Supreme Court decision. Do you see anything wrong with this? I do. <laughs> I see a lot of things, but let me just highlight two. First, this ruling completely misconstrues the First Amendment of the Constitution. What does the First Amendment say? It says specifically, Congress. So it starts out with, Congress, not the public schools, but Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This ruling has nothing to do with Congress establishing or prohibiting anything. Second, look at the effect this ruling has had regarding the upbringing of our kids in this country. 
in part measure, no wonder we have the current culture we do because the Ten Commandments are forbidden in public schools. Imagine school children actually reading, meditating on, and then obeying the commands, the various commands, oh, I don't know, of not stealing, of not murdering, about honoring mom and dad. What would life be like today if kids were exposed then and now to the 10 words in their homes and in the public schools today? I think it would be a little bit better, don't you? So let's do our part now to kind of break the cycle as we together would recite the 10 words. Let's use our hands in more ways than just doing stuff, all right? Let's use them to remember and to recite Yahweh's ways and see if I can remember this. So I'm going to start with my left hand because I'm dominant here. And so the first commandment is loyalty to Yahweh alone. Have no other gods. Reject all other gods. Middler finger is wear God's name properly. Don't take his name in vain. Ring finger is what? Keep the Sabbath. And the fifth finger is to honor dad and mom. On the other hand, literally, don't murder. My thumb. Uh, index finger. Don't commit adultery. Middler finger is don't steal. Ring finger is don't bear false witness. And pinky finger is don't covet. These are the 10 words at our fingertips. And so when we go about using our hands, let's maybe pause a little bit and just give God thanks or to remember how we as his people should live. Today, what we're going to do, we're going to cover the last sentence, that last word. And why am I dropping out? It's found in Deuteronomy 5.21, just one verse. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's it. Tenth word right there. Now, having reviewed the nine words in the past and even hearing them today, do you notice anything different about the tenth word versus the other nine? The other nine, the first nine were outward actions, but the tenth word deals exclusively with inner motivations. In reality, though, where do our actions come from? Where do they start? They do start in the inside, don't they? In the heart. And so, in a sense, it all is summed up on the heart. So let's, again, let's look at the inner motivations. Let's look at coveting today. Now, there's something else I want to point out as well as we talk about this word. And not only just this word, but, but all the words of the 10 words. And it is specifically to whom Moses was addressing these words. Now, it might surprise you of the answer. And, and we're going to talk about this in due time at the end of the message. But let's dive into this all-important word, dealing with our heart. But in order to do that, we need to go back to the beginning. So again, turn with me to to, uh, Genesis, and we're going to go in there, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 for a little while. Now, the Hebrew that's translated covet here actually appears very early in Scripture, and it's a positive thing, believe it or not. Now, the word carries with it the idea of something desirable or pleasant delightful. Isn't that a good word? It's a great. And the first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. So Genesis chapter 2, verse, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. 
And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, there's that word, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we, here we have all these trees everywhere. They're pleasant. They're good. They're great to look at, including the tree of life and including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All these trees were pleasant and good. Now, moving on to the next chapter in Genesis 3, 3, 6, we see this word again. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, again, to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, what did she do? She took the fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, these words delight and desired are synonyms in the original, so they're kind of the same right there. But how did it happen? How did it go from Adam and Eve appreciating all the good gifts that God had for them to go to obsessing over some things, especially one thing, demanding that they have them, even if it means to disobey the Lord who gave them those good things. How did that happen? Well, the obvious answer is the enemy. Those of us who know the story, the enemy entered in, the serpent. And what did he do? He employed a strategy in the Garden of Eden that has worked with powerful effect ever since. He uses it on us all the time. But the watchword here is discontentment. Discontentment. Remember the story. Adam and Eve were in the garden, a perfect environment, enjoying all the good and pleasant things that the Lord made. Then along came the serpent, and the scripture says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast that the Lord God had made. And the serpent was out to destroy things. And he did it by a three-step strategy. And the first step was communication. The serpent spoke, and Eve listened and interacted. Well, guess what? That was a mistake. That was the first mistake here. Now, as we look back, as God has given us further revelation, we understand that we do not interact with the enemy. We don't just kind of dialogue with this guy. And he is real, by the way. It's not just a force. Satan is real. We don't interact with him, but what do we do? We as Christians who know Christ as Lord and Savior, who have the Holy Spirit living within us, what do we do? We command Satan to flee, and we're allowed to do that, and he will as we tell him to leave. John tells us in his first letter, in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the authority from God himself to tell Satan to get out of our lives. My question is, how often do we do it? Or how, how often we just kind of let things go in our minds? I know in, in full transparency, I do that quite often, and I should not be doing that. Every time something evil enters my mind, I should immediately get them out. But how often do we do that? And how we need spiritual protection. Isn't that true? God has provided His Word to permeate our thoughts. So it will guard the meditation of our hearts. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 tells us this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word guards our way, whether we're young or old, whether we're men, whether we're women, boys or girls. The heart of the matter is indeed the heart. And for the psalmist, he was seeking the Lord with all of his heart, knowing that it's the word of God that protects him from sin. And speaking of protection of sin, the psalmist finds that protection in Scripture as he has stored up God's word in his heart. And this is a challenge for all of us, isn't it? How many of us have this this Scripture memory meditation thing down? I don't see any hands. It is difficult, but it is imperative. If we know Christ our Lord and Savior, it is imperative that we memorize and meditate on Holy Scripture. Especially given how wicked our culture is, we need protection from all the lies that are all around us. Holy Scripture can encourage us. It can guard us. It can protect us. It can guide us. It can rebuke and correct us and enable us to walk closer to the Lord. If you find yourself struggling with that, and I think I didn't see any hands, so I guess all of us do struggle with that, let me encourage you, and, and Greg mentioned it, we have every third Sunday after service for an hour, we have what's called Pastor's Brown Bag Lunch, where we come together to talk about the one thing, the one job the Lord Jesus has given his church. And what is that? To make disciples. We take part of that time to encourage and to help one another to memorize Holy Scripture. Come and share a meal with us and get more equipped to uh, memorize and meditate on Scripture. But that's step one. Step two of the serpent's strategy is found in the first words of Genesis 3.1. When the serpent was asking a question. And by the way, the first question of the Bible is what? Questioning God's word, which is very interesting, isn't it? But what did the serpent say to the woman? Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent introduced the idea of discontentment into the conversation. You shouldn't be content with what God has given you. Let me introduce you to discontentment here. Remember how the Lord gave Adam and Eve permission to eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the knowledge of good and evil. But what did the serpent do? Had Eve focused on the one thing that she could, that they could not have, the one thing that was forbidden. And so along with planting discontentment in the conversation, the serpent continued with Eve and lied to her. In Genesis 3, 4 to 5, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. But what did God say? The day that you eat is the day that you're going to die. So Eve, Eve heard the lie. Serpent lied to her. You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I find it interesting that the serpent did not force Adam and Eve to eat, did he? What did he do? He set things up for Adam and Eve to make a choice, and then he stepped back. But before Eve bit the fruit, Eve took the lie into her heart, and she trusted the lie over and above God's word, and that's where the problem was. And then came step three. What started out as appreciation for and a contentment in the pleasant 
and delightful things that the Lord had given Adam and Eve in this garden, it turned now to discontentment and an obsession for what was forbidden. What Eve previously saw as pleasant to the eyes now became an obsession in her heart. And she coveted the fruit, and she ate it with Adam by her side. And since that day, the cancer called covetousness has been with us. Like every physical virus that enters a human race, every person is born with a natural tendency to obsess over, literally to lust after something that is forbidden. I mentioned last time we were in Deuteronomy, but it definitely bears repeating here. It's good to refresh our memory. The issue of coveting is definitely a matter of the heart. We agree with this. It is in the heart where the transformation comes from appreciation of what God has given to obsession, and it takes place in our hearts, and it does so in three ways. First, we go from appreciating someone or something that is pleasant to us. Second, the appreciation turns to obsessing over that person or thing. I got to have and fill in the blank. And third, steps are then taken to possess the obsession. Now, we all understand how this works, don't we? Of course, we all own things. How many of us don't own a thing? All of us own something, right? Those who are married have a husband or a wife. Isn't that true? I mean, that's pretty obvious. But over time, what happens to us? We kind of get used to our surroundings. We kind of get used to our relationships. We kind of get used to our things. Husbands, we know our wives better than anybody else, don't we? Or we should. And wives, you know your husbands better than anybody else as well. And over time, though, if we're not careful, what happens? We sort of take our marriages for granted. It becomes a little bit stale, a little bit old. And I believe that the word or the, the modern proverb familiarity breeds contempt enters here. So in this situation, if we're not careful, when somebody comes along that's pleasing to our eyes, it could set the stage to move us from appreciating how the Lord has made this individual, woman or man, and how then this person can become an object to covet. Matthew 28, the Lord directly deals with this 10th word, and he says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the phrase lustful intent here, another version simply have it lust, carries with it the exact same idea that we find in the 10th word in Deuteronomy 5.21, exact same word. Now, of course, a man's lustful intent toward a woman is not the only wicked transformation that can take place in a heart. Isn't that true? There's all kinds of things that can do that. Mark records Jesus' words about the condition of every heart, the condition that actually defiles a person in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's a pretty long list of evil, isn't it? Guess where that resides? And Matthew adds this little uh, sin as well. 
false witness. So add that to the mix. We're not very good people, are we? We're pretty wicked. We're pretty evil because out of the heart comes all these things. Now, we just talked about men specifically coveting women or another way of saying lusting after women because Jesus addressed it. But coveting is something that we all are guilty of, not being content with what the Lord has given us. Let me give you another example. Say a young lady who is content. She's driving her well-worn vehicle, right? She's got, she's got an old beater car, you know, but she's, hey, it's great. It's not the best ride on the road, but I'm content. I'm happy with my car. And then all of a sudden, what does she see? She sees this amazing vehicle, this amazing truck. And she says, you know what? I got to have me that. It has all the bells and whistles I could ever want. So what happens to her contentment with her vehicle? All of a sudden, she has a need, is what the marketers will say, right? She has a need. I got to have this. And her contentment washes away. And now she, if she's not very careful, can covet this thing. So what do we see here? Whether it is an illicit relationship or discontentment with the things that the Lord has given us, each one of us has a heart that I describe as a transformation factory. And the danger for God's people to violate the 10 words is ever present with us, even as Christians. For we too can covet. We too can murder. We too can become guilty of pride and bear false witness and so much more. Isn't that right? How we need supernatural help to shut down the transformation factory that we may fully appreciate God's good gift, being content with what He has given us while not obsessing over what everybody else has and then demanding that we have them as well. But praise God for His indescribable gift of salvation in Christ. Through the new covenant, the power of evil in our hearts to transform our appreciation of God's good gifts to an obsession to possess becomes lessened, even lessened to the place where it is not nearly as much of a problem now as it was at the beginning. Now, the problem that we have is that it will never be eradicated on this side of heaven, true? And we're all going to be dealing with these things. Tragically, we're all prone to commit sin. None of us is exempt. But one day, it will be eradicated, won't it? Those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, those of us who follow Christ, there will be no trace of wickedness in our hearts. And part of what the Lord does in salvation is to glorify His people. He will take away our sinful nature on the other side. Remember how Paul told us that as sons and daughters of God through Christ, we are fellow heirs with Him. And he gives us two spiritual facts of life in Romans 8. He says first that we will suffer because we are Christians, because we identify with Jesus. And how about you, but if you've ever been loud and proud about being a Christian, what happens? In many cases, we tend to lose our friends that way sometimes, don't we? But the second spiritual fact of life is that we're going to be glorified with Christ later on. And I can't wait for that day. But in the meantime, our struggle with sin, particularly coveting, continues. But the Holy Spirit, the Helper, gives us power to put down coveting whenever we call upon Him. Paul tells us in Romans that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
He has given us the power to put it down every time it rears his ugly head. Come back to Deuteronomy 5.21. As we read earlier, the tenth word is a straightforward command that cuts two ways. First, we have said, coveting involves obsessing over that which is one's neighbor's, to include his wife or servants, any animal or material possessions. God through Moses says, in essence, that is not yours. Don't go there. That's the negative side. Now, there's a positive side to this commandment as well. We can word it this way. God is telling his people through Moses, be content with what you have. The Lord is the ultimate provider of all things that you call your own. He is also the provider of all things that your neighbor has as well. Enjoy the gifts the Lord has given you and allow your neighbor to do the same. So having covered the background and the strategy for combating covetousness in our own hearts, let me now turn the corner and wrap up the 10 words. I mentioned earlier in the message that we're going to take a look at exactly to whom Moses was speaking when he said these things to the congregation of Israel. The hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that were there, Moses had a certain group of people in mind. Now, one would think that Moses was addressing specifically every last person there in the congregation, but he wasn't. Again, there was one group of people that he was looking at. Once again, I want to turn to the material that Dr. Daniel Block has, who is one of the elite students of all things Deuteronomy. He's been studying this book for the last 25 years, I think. But Block's insights are of extreme value for us to understand this passage. And in reality, the truth of what God was driving at regarding the 10 words. So, to whom are these 10 words addressed? The men. He was targeting the men, the heads of the households. When he said, you shall have no other gods before me, he was saying, you men, you heads of households, you will have no other gods before me. You heads of households, you will not murder. You heads of households, and then complete it all the way down through all the 10 words. He was saying this to the men, to the heads of the households. Now, it's applicable to everybody but he was speaking specifically to the men. Now, it really does make sense when you think about it, because when you look, for example, at the second word, when he's talking about don't, don't make idols and don't bow down and worship them, what did he say would happen if a person did that? I'm going to pass on the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He did not say pass on the iniquity of the fathers and the mothers there. And then even in the tenth word we just talked about, he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's what? Wife, your neighbor's wife. And as we get further into Deuteronomy, we're going to see that same-sex marriage was absolutely not a thing in the culture as God's people. And let me just say that. It, it wasn't a thing then, and it's not a thing now. In the church, same-sex marriage is no, a big fat no. God's Word tells us so. But what does this mean? What difference does it make to understand it this way? Well, primarily this. It is the male head of the household whom God held responsible to live out and teach these words. And we're going to see later the rest of the Torah. 
It is the head of the home who sets the example. It's the head of the home to whom everybody in the family is to listen to regarding God's way of life. And we're talking about, for us, presently heads of home and also young men who are going to become heads of homes. And even grandfathers who still have influence in the families. It all applies to the males in the family. In many lines of work, there is training that needs to be accomplished in the company. And we are kind of familiar with this, those who are, who are in the corporate world, or even, even really just about any kind of line of work. The concept of train the trainer is a very popular one. And what happens is some people from the company or from the organization go to a certain place, they learn some things, they bring it back, and they train everybody else in the organization or the, or the company. That's kind of what this is. Moses was telling the men, he was training the men so that the men can do what? Train their families in the ways of righteousness. Only here, again, it's life skills. It is not just, not just spiritual things, but the life skills that God wants to use the men to train everybody under their roof. It's a primary job of the husband, the father, the head of the household to live and give the ways of Yahweh to all who reside in the household. Again, just a brief word about this in our day. As it was then, so it is now. The primary responsibility of spiritual training has been placed on the husband and father in the home, if there are children, especially if they're at home. The local church here is to supplement the fathers, to supplement the husbands, but is not to take the place of your role. And the Lord will hold accountable every man when we stand before him on that day. Now, this is true whether the man is a Christian or not. We're still going to be giving account. Every man will. I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthians about the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Every person is going to stand before God to give an account one day. And I'll say, no pressure, guy. No pressure. But praise God for his grace. Praise God for his mercy. There is forgiveness with God. Men, all of us have blown it, haven't we? We've all blown it. The Lord knows that we've blown it, and he has given us a gift, and the gift is repentance. I urge you, as I urge myself, let's take advantage of this gift, and, and let's marvel anew and afresh at how the Lord's mercy and his grace is toward us. The Lord died to take away our sin, and he will finish what he started in us. And that's a promise, not just to the men, but to every one of us. Until that day, let's be about the business, especially us as men, to be exercising our faith, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out as an exercise your salvation with fear and trembling for God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me now briefly introduce you to a fantastic approach 
that Dr. Block has regarding the ten words. He calls this, these ten words, these ten commandments, Israel's Bill of Rights. Rather than we as 21st century American Christians tend to see the law as an overly oppressive set of rules, Block turns it around and he describes them as Israel's Bill of Rights. Well, how can we look at it this way? How can anybody look at this set of rules, this set of laws as a Bill of Rights? Let me quote for you from his book, from where I get the title for this whole series, which is The Gospel According to Moses. After Block explains that rather than seeing the Ten Commandments as one's own personal Bill of Rights, he writes this. He says, the Decalogue, as in the Ten Commandments, is not concerned to protect my rights, but the rights of the next person. According to the arrangement of the rules of the Decalogue, the next person involves two parties, Yahweh, the divine suzerain or the king, and fellow members of the vassal community or the Israelites. In fact, as Jesus and Paul recognize in their boiling down of all the commandments to command to love Yahweh and one's nature, Block continues, the object of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is the objective just to encourage love for God and for one's neighbor, the kind of behavior that puts the interests of the next person ahead of his own. That sounds a little bit like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? And it goes like this, though. When the head of the household takes seriously his job to live and to teach the ways of Torah to those of his household, chances are that many, if not most, and maybe even everybody in his household will at least tend to live out Yahweh's ways. And think about what this means. If one faithful household lives the Torah, will the neighbors be afraid of their kids stealing their stuff or killing them? Will the guy next door be afraid his wife will be violated or be tempted to or even coerced to follow after other gods and thereby arouse God's displeasure? But now then, what if all the families around this faithful Torah-observant family lives out God's ways? What would that be like? Can we say freedom from worry, freedom from fear, freedom from God's displeasure? And all would joyfully worship Yahweh in reverent awe, not forgetting who they are and honoring those who embody the past, respecting their heritage and the wisdom of their parents. And on and on we go as we see the Bill of Rights being played out in a glorious way in the community. And so as we bring this section of God's word to a close. What can we say about it? What can we do about it? Well, spread the faith around. What kind of life do you think is the best way to live? What kind of life are you convinced is the best way to live? The way of the world or the way of God? What is the best way for you? In your heart of hearts, what way do you want to live? You've got the choice don't you? As I mentioned earlier, even as followers of Christ, we're capable of the worst sins. But if we really are Christians, our desire and our cooperation with the Holy Spirit in our lives will draw us closer to the Lord, won't it? And that really is the question, is it? What do you want in your life? What do I want in my life? 
Do I want the Lord? Do I crave to be like Jesus? Do you crave to be like Jesus? Or just kind of like going through the motions? Do my religious thing and that's it. Do you crave to be like him? You know, just like anything else, isn't it? If you're married and you want a good marriage, what are you going to do? You're going to put in the work. You're going to take the time and invest yourself in that marriage. As an athlete, if you want to get better, what do you do? You practice. You put in the work. You take the time. As a grandparent, if you want to get close to your grandkids, what do you do? You put in the work, right? You contact them. You, you, you get with them. If you want to get close to Jesus, you'll put in the work. This is not work salvation. This is a desire to get close to the one who loves you and saved you. Exercise your faith. Show the Lord that you love him by keeping his word. I mentioned this recently, but it has, as I've been chewing on this passage of Scripture, it has profoundly taken root in my heart. It's beginning to change everything about me, I think. I'm only beginning now to grasp it. You know, in John 14, 30 and 31, we have the heart of Jesus' motivation for everything he did while he was here. And that motivation was the love of his Father. And love, even for Christ himself, as Yahweh in the flesh, spelled love this way, O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, obedience. He did that. He obeyed the Father. He showed he loved the Father by his obedience to him. See, like any good leader, the Lord never expected his followers to do something he himself was not willing to do. And here's what the Lord said right before he led his men to the Garden of Gethsemane. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love who? The Father. Not the world. The Father. Rise, let us go from here. Accompany Jesus and his men to the garden. See the bloody sweat due to his agony. Hear the angry mob who came to arrest him. Follow him to several unjust trials. Watch him as he, the innocent one, was flogged and crucified. He went through all of that to show the world that he loved his father. And if we're going to be Christ, we need to be obedient the way Jesus was obedient to show the world that we love him. So a question, what areas of your life need tweaking that you might show the world that you love the Lord? Could it be spending more intentional time with him? Could it be spending more intentional time with his people? How about preparing yourself and being ready when you have an opportunity to identify with the Lord? Fill in the blank. May the Lord reveal to us what we need to adjust 
And by the way, the adjustment is called what? Repentance. We are to live our lives in repentance, adjusting our ways with, to His way. And all that to show the world that we love the Lord. And for those of us who never turned from our sin and embraced Christ, and embraced the gospel that Christ proclaimed, is your opportunity right now to do that. You can express your faith in prayer. And you can declare your allegiance to the Lord by standing right where you are. And so during this time, and you know we don't do this all the time, but for those here who've never taken that step, who've never said, hey, I want to declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ right here, right now. I want to share this. I want to stand up and let myself be known that I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm repenting of my sin, and I'm going to now follow Jesus. I'm going to exchange my ways for His. And so I'm not going to belabor, but uh, if there's anyone here that would say, yes, I want to declare my allegiance to the Lord, just would you do so by just standing? And by standing, you're, you're saying to us that, yes, I am part of the family. So anybody like to do that? And for the rest of us, what areas in your life has the Lord shown you even today that you need to have tweak? What areas do you need to get more in line with what the Lord would have you to get in line with to make you be more in line with his ways. So let's pray and uh, let's commit our time, commit this time to the Lord. Father, through these lips today, as the message was given, as your spirit is here, I pray that you would reveal to us, you would show us, you would share with us, Lord, what areas of our lives need to be adjusted. What areas of our lives, Lord, that we need to to say, Lord, I have not been obedient in this area. Lord, I want to show the world that I love you. Just like, Lord Jesus, you showed the world that you love the Father through your obedience. Lord, you're not willing, you, you did not tell us to do anything that you were not willing to do. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk more closely with you, that we would repent of the things that we need to repent of, and that the world may see more clearly who you are in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. We thank you, Father, for giving us your son. We thank you, Lord, for this powerful word of, of not coveting and how to overcome it or how to lessen its effect in our lives. Lord, I pray that you help us to be faithful to you because you've been faithful to us. Help us, Lord, to love you more and to serve you better because you've loved us first. And Father, now I pray that as we turn our attention to our giving, I pray that you would help us to give and also to sing as acts of worship because, Lord, these indeed are acts of worship. Help us, Lord, to do them as unto you. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give you the praise. In your name we pray. Amen.